You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. So Ian's going to preach and communion all in the one. So, <laughs> man of multi-talents. Um, so just as he comes up and prepares, we'll just pray for him. And um, yeah, get ready for the first preach of the year. Father, we, we thank you for Ian, Lord. Lord, we thank you for his heart, Lord. Lord, we thank you for his leadership in our church, Lord. And we're excited, Father, for this year, Lord. Would you bless him, Father, for for this year, Lord. And uh, bless him through this preach, Lord. I pray you prepare our hearts, Lord. I pray be ready to receive your word, Lord. Your word never goes out, never comes back void, Father. So would you work in us, Lord, and would you bless his wor- the words, Lord, that have come from you, Father, and and um, would you speak for Ian this morning, Lord, and, and just bless him, Father, for and him and Mel for the year to come as well, um, as, as leading a church is obviously not easy, Father, Lord, but would you strengthen them, Lord, and continue helping to hear from you, Lord, and bless them throughout this year. Amen. Morning, everybody. Wonderful to be back. Hope you've all had a great Christmas break and uh, excited to be back and getting into the word again and uh, we got a bit of ground to cover this morning so I'll try and get through as quickly as possible uh, yes <laughs> and uh, we're primarily in in the book of Acts this morning um, so if you want to open up your Bibles your uh Bible Acts, whatever you may have, to Acts chapter 18, which is where we'll be starting. And I want to kick off this new year with a mini-series on the book of Ephesians. I'm convinced that Ephesians is vitally important to healthy Christian life, both personally and corporately as a body of believers. But before we get into the book of Ephesians proper, I want to spend a week on the background by way of introduction. And then we'll try and work through the whole book of Ephesians, one chapter at a time. And uh, some of you don't think that's possible for me to do that. And I'll make no promises, but I'll do my best. So Ephesus was the third largest city in the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was a huge empire. It stretched from what is now the UK, right through the Middle East, around Northern Africa, uh, an enormous empire, and Ephesus was the third largest city in it. That made it one of the most important cities as well in the empire. Ephesus is located in Asia Minor, what is now known as Turkey, and uh, today the city is in ruins. It was abandoned several hundred years ago, and uh, Ephesus was a major economic, business and trading hub, and a tourist hub not unlike modern-day Melbourne, actually. It was also a major centre of worship. It was the home of the Temple of Artemis, who was a powerful goddess in the pantheon of ancient deities. Tourists and worshippers flocked to Ephesus. You can, if you travel, still visit the ruins of the Temple of Artemis, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Now, the Apostle Paul travelled around an awful lot in his ministry time. We read all about it in the book of Acts. Uh, Preaching the gospel wherever it hadn't been heard. Paul made a point of going to where the gospel hadn't been heard. Wherever he went, the first thing he did was sort out the local Jewish population. He would gather with them in a synagogue or in a place of prayer or something like that to tell them the good news of Jesus Christ. 
For the most part, though, the Jews rejected the message. They would attack him, they would beat him, they would stone him, they would make plots to kill him. A few of the Jews would believe the message, but most of them rejected it. So when the Jews wouldn't listen, he would then turn to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish population around them. For the most part, the Gentiles seemed to be much more accepting of the gospel message. And Paul planted a small church in Ephesus when he visited there on one of his trips and then continued on his journey. And he returned there later to uh, to stay for around about three years. Like all the churches that Paul planted, the one in Ephesus was a mixture of both Jew and Gentile. They're not two races that would normally associate together. Jews hated Gentiles, Gentiles hated Jews. So they wouldn't normally mix But the church in Ephesus, the church in Rome, the church in Corinth, wherever Paul planted a church, was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. That's important to remember as we get into Ephesians in the coming weeks, that Paul was preaching and planting churches that were a mix of different nationalities, different races. So if you want to go to Acts chapter 18, verse 18... We'll start the story. Paul, at this time of this, was in the city of Corinth, which is in uh, modern-day Greece. And verse 18, Paul says, After this, after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea he had his hair cut, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. So after getting this new church started, Paul left Priscilla and Aquila in Ephesus to help it grow. And then he continued on his journey. While he was gone, a man by the name of Apollos came to Ephesus. Apollos appears to have been pretty well trained in the scriptures, but he was probably an Old Testament type of uh, preacher. So if we jump down a few verses to verse 24, it says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. I find it interesting that time and time again in the accounts in the book of Acts we read of miracles happening. There's a lot of miracles recorded in the book of Acts. But what I find most interesting is the emphasis is always on the word of God as the foundation for salvation. It is always the word of God that is the foundation for salvation. Very rarely is it miracles. I find that quite interesting. After Priscilla and Aquila had straightened Apollos out, he too left to take the gospel elsewhere. It continues in verse, in chapter 19, verse 1. 
where it says, And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptised? They said, Into John's baptism, just like Apollos was. And Paul said, John baptised with the baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about twelve men in all. And then it continues on from there. In verse 8, And he entered the synagogue and for three months spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became stubborn and continued in unbelief, speaking evil of the way before the congregation, he withdrew from them and took the disciples with him, reasoning daily in the hall of Tyrannus. Have you ever noticed that's often the most religious people who are the most opposed to the gospel. It's often the most long-established churches and denominations who are the most opposed to preaching the truth and preaching accurately from the Bible. Unfortunately, many of our long-established denominations are so focused now on social work on social causes, they've effectively turned their back on the good news of the gospel, turned their back on the Bible. And they seem to be the ones who are most publicly critical of churches that don't follow their lead, that do insist on preaching the gospel clearly. Now, it shouldn't be like that. It's necessary for churches to serve the poor. It's necessary for churches and for Christians to bind up the brokenhearted to feed the hungry, to defend the defenceless. These are things that we should be doing as churches. We fail our calling as Christians and as churches if we don't do that. But at the end of the day, at the end of the day, these things are only temporal. The church itself is eternal. The primary work of the church is to preach Christ crucified. The overflow of that work should be serving the poor. It shouldn't be the other way around. And unfortunately, many churches and denominations have got that the wrong way around and then attack the churches that preach the gospel. Verse 10, it continues. This continued for two years so that all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul so that even handkerchiefs or aprons, aprons that had touched his skin, were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. And then we come to a funny, if a little scary, story. The story of the seven sons of Sceva. I'm sure you've all read it. It would be interesting to know how they got their reputation as exorcists, but scripture doesn't tell us. But they had obviously, it seems to me, been watching Paul in action and had seen evil spirits coming out of people as a result of Paul's ministry. So they thought they would add Paul's weapon to their arsenal by also using the name of Jesus to drive out demons. And it tells us in verse 13, 
then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of, Sceva, uh, seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognise, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. What did they do wrong? They used the name of Jesus. Paul was using the name of Jesus, and evil spirits were coming out. And Paul wasn't getting hurt in the process. But these seven men were beaten up and stripped naked by one single person with a demon. How is that possible? Where does that sort of strength come from? There are precedents for it in the Gospels, of course. You see in Mark chapter 5, a man we often call Legion, who was so demonised that no one could contain him. They'd even tried to chain him up with iron chains and shackles and he would break the iron chains. How strong do you have to be to break an iron chain and not break your own bones? He was superhumanly strong. But Jesus set him free with a word. In Luke 4, we see a similar thing. Another demonised man set free by Jesus' word. No power struggle, no raised voices, no battle, just a word. Come out of him, Jesus said, and the demons left. That's because the demons know who Jesus is. Even if most people today choose to ignore Jesus, choose to reject Jesus, the demons know who he is, the demons know his power, the demons know his authority the problem for the seven sons of Sceva is that they didn't know Jesus themselves that was their problem they only knew about Jesus Jesus we know and Paul we've heard about who are you they said they had no saving relationship with Jesus Christ that's a vitally important distinction So there's an important warning for us in this passage, an important warning for unbelievers in this passage, but also an encouragement for believers. One of the things we'll discover as we study Ephesians is that those who are in Christ, that is, those who have put their trust in him for their salvation, have been granted authority in his name. But those who haven't put their trust in him For them, his name won't make a scrap of difference in the battle. The seven sons of Sceva found that out the hard way. The name of Jesus is not some magic word, an abracadabra that we can use to achieve things, to cast out demons. It's not some incantation. It's the authority of heaven granted to those who trust in him and only to those who trust in him. It's granted only to his ambassadors. Are you one of his ambassadors? If you are, he has granted you the authority of heaven to drive out demons with a word. 
Continuing on in Acts chapter 19 at verse 17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all, and the name of Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who are now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. How do you know when someone has been genuinely converted and not just had an emotional experience? There'll be evidence. There will be some sort of evidence. There'll be repentance. There'll be a changed life. It may be dramatic like these people who piled up their books and burnt them all. In today's dollars, that 50,000 pieces of silver would be worth something like $15 million. That's repentance. That's not an emotional response. That's a change. Or it may be more subtle, like a gradual forsaking of the things that were so precious to us in the past. That happens with some people. It's not so obvious. And there may be a gradual conforming to the image of Christ. But there will be change in a person who has genuinely been saved. If there's no change, we have to question whether they've been saved. Verse 20 continues. So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. It's always the word of the Lord that continues to increase and prevail mightily. Nothing can stop God's word from achieving what he sets it out to do. Nothing. We need to have that conviction in our own hearts that when we're sharing the word of God, when we're sharing Jesus Christ with people, God will do what he wants to do. Nothing can stop it. Nothing can stop the word of God. Now after these events... Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, After I've been there, I must also see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now we'll jump out of Acts 19 briefly into 1 Corinthians 16. Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians while he was in Ephesus. And in it, he gives us an insight into what he faced in Ephesus. And to the Corinthians, he writes, in verse, chapter 16, verse 7, For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. A wide door for effective work has been opened to me and there are many adversaries. Paul doesn't say, but there are many adversaries. He says, and there are many adversaries. I think that gives us some insight into Paul's thinking, his mindset, his understanding of the word, his understanding of salvation. Tells me that Paul didn't fear opposition, persecution or death tells me that Paul trusted the word of God to do what the word of God only can do. It tells me that Paul knew his standing 
and his security in Christ tells me that Paul knew the power of God's word to overcome any and all opposition. Be encouraged. Adversaries must ju- may just be evidence that God's word is powerful and effective. Don't fear adversaries. Paul didn't. It didn't seem to faze him. And there are many adversaries, almost as if, yeah, well, I expected it. Let's go back to Acts 19, verse 23. It says, About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger, not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the great the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may be disposed from her magnificence she whom all Asia and the world worship. Now when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theatre, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. Even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theatre. Now some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. How easily we succumb to peer group pressure. How easily we conform to the culture around us. Everyone's shouting something. And it's easier for us to conform, to go along with the crowd rather than use our God-given intelligence and reasoning faculties. Too often we don't have valid reasons for the things we do. Instead, we follow the crowd. But Romans 12, 2, J.B. Phillips puts it, don't let the world squeeze you into its mould. As Christians, we can't let the world squeeze us into its mould. Going on in verse 33. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defence to the crowd. But when they recognised that he was a Jew, for about two hours they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Can you imagine the noise? The crowd, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, constantly for two hours, drowning out everything else. Now, did you know Twitter storms are not a 21st century phenomenon? The first Twitter storm I know of is right here in Ephesus in the first century. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians, two hours drowning out everything else. The Twitter storms can be effective, can't they? Facebook can be effective. 
That's why Twitter and Facebooks and social media and celebrities are used to push a certain line to drown out other voices, to influence culture and even shape elections. They're effective at promoting their cause. But most people who jump on the Twitter bandwagon, on the Facebook bandwagon, probably haven't thought through the, the issues any more than this crowd in, in Ephesus. I'll bet that most people forwarding the latest Facebook post or Twitter responding to the latest Twitter tweet don't know why they've come together, just like the crowd in Ephesus. But everyone's doing it, so we better join in. Verse 35, it goes on to tell us, When the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of Ephesus is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, and you can't deny that the stone fell from the sky, surely, but these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. You know, there's appropriate channels for expressing disagreement, expressing your opinions, expressing opposition. Twitter is not it. Facebook is not it. Neither channel encourages reasoned discussion. Neither channel encourages open debate. Neither challenge Neither channel fosters balance, harmony, reconciliation. Both of them tend to polarise and push people further apart. If you're one of the people who likes people who likes to jump on the Twitter bandwagon or the Facebook bandwagon, stop it. Stop it. At least stop it enough and long enough to use your intelligence and to ask some questions. Is it true? Is it helpful? Will it promote peace and harmony? Will it represent Christ accurately? Is it even Christian? Frequently, I think you'll find the answer to those questions is no. In which case, it's better to keep silent and ignore it. It'll go away. Twitter storms always go away. Or even better, respond with truth. If you choose to respond with truth, be prepared to bear the brunt of their fury yourself. Because there's no reason in Twitter or Facebook. There are appropriate channels to express our concerns and to resolve our differences. We can use mediators, we can use the courts, We can use the political system. We can use the newspapers. Don't expect social media to help the cause of our freedom as Christians. It's opposed to us. Social media is a false messiah. Verse 40, the story continues. 
But we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the, the assembly. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. Sometime later, we'll get into Acts chapter 20, sometime later, Paul was on his way to Jerusalem and he stopped in at the port of Miletus, which is about 80 kilometres from Ephesus. Now, if we were driving it today, it'd be an hour, an hour and a half drive, probably. But 80 kilometres in those days when you're on foot was a fairly lengthy journey. But he called the elders of the church for a catch-up and he shared some encouraging words and some warnings with them. And if we go to verse 17 in Acts chapter 20, it says, Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Persecution is nothing new for Christians. The only way to avoid persecution in some form is to conform ourselves to the image of the world. That means watering down the gospel. That means walking away from our faith. The world won't be satisfied with anything less. Do you realise that? The world doesn't want you to follow Christ and it will be satisfied with nothing less than you turning your back on Christ. But Paul, in the face of all opposition, continued to to declare, both in public and in private, the good news of our Lord Jesus Christ. It resulted in his arrest, his imprisonment, and his eventual execution. But Paul wasn't blind to the difficulties he was going to face, to the challenges he had in his ministry. He went into it with eyes wide open. He knew that he would labour long and hard in the face of the most vicious and brutal opposition. He knew that he would eventually give his life for the gospel. Will it mean that for you and I? If we were to follow in the steps of Paul? Maybe here in Australia, one day, maybe it will. Almost certainly if you choose to take the gospel to hostile Muslim nations, you'll face death. Will it be worth it? Will it be worth it? You bet it will. We have the best news. Not just good news, we have the best news. We have a news of life in the midst of death. Tells us we are the fragrance of life to some and the fragrance of death, the stench of death to others. But we have news that can be heard nowhere else but from us. 
if that means taking the gospel into hostile territory, which we do every day as Christians in a secular country, then so be it. It's worth it. It's a message that is no less powerful today than it was 2,000 years ago. Lord, would you grant that we would be so convinced and convicted of the truth of your word that we would fear nothing, persecution or even death, to follow and to preach in your name. Acts 20, 28 continues the story. Paul talking to the elders of Ephesus, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. One of the tragedies of the modern church and the of the church through history really, but especially the modern church. It's not enough that we face opposition and persecution from the world around us. It arises from within. Some of the greatest opposition comes from within. Fierce wolves who will not spare the flock, Paul told the elders at Ephesus. If you've ever watched the David Attenborough documentary, and I'm sure you all have, you'll know wolves aren't delicate and careful with their prey. They hunt their victims. They drag them down. They tear them apart savagely. How will you know if there is a wolf in your midst if you don't know this, if you don't know the words of this book? How will you know? How will you discern? This book has to be precious to you. It has to saturate your soul. It has to be written, engraved on your heart. You have so little to defend yourself if you don't have this book. And Paul's talking here to the elders of the church of Ephesus. So he's primarily warning them to look out for the wolves. But what if the leaders themselves are the wolves? It happens. It happens that the leaders are the ones that lead them astray and tear them apart. We've seen that in modern church history. Jim Jones, was that in the 70s or the 80s, leading, I think it was 800 people down to South America, only to all commit suicide down there. Started life as an orthodox Christian Baptist pastor, but became a wolf. And his followers followed him to their destruction. He tore them apart. How will you know if your leaders are wolves if you don't know this book? Will you be naive enough to follow them to your destruction? Lord, I pray not. Lord, I pray that you write this word on our hearts. Acts 20 verse 36. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. That was the last 
time the Ephesians would ever see Paul. He would soon be arrested, not long after that be arrested, spending the rest of his years in prison, which is where he wrote the letter to the Ephesians, from prison. some point we won't have time to get into it today. Timothy was appointed an elder in the church at Ephesus. You can read Paul's letter to him, 1 Timothy. But in that letter, it's interesting to note that already there were false teachings, wolves arising in the church. Only within a handful of years of Paul warning the elders at Ephesus. Don't expect things to get better for Christians in this country in the coming years. We've already seen recently Israel Folau penalised for posting a Bible verse publicly. A violent Twitter storm sprang up around that, which included abuse and death threats. I remember sitting next to a group of school teachers in a cafe one morning before work, not long ago, around about that time, and they were talking about Israel Folau's posting and they were talking about how disgusting it was that he should judge others like that. They said with, with voices dripping with judgment. I sat there and thought to myself, isn't that exactly what you're doing to him? Isn't that a double standard? But the world abounds in double standards now. Double standards are par for the course. It's not many years ago that Pastor Danny Nalia was found guilty of inciting religious hatred because he quoted directly out of the Quran in a private seminar. And word got out, he was taken to court and convicted of inciting religious hatred. Just recently, the Victorian state government tried to introduce legislation that would prevent me from telling you that you must put your trust in Jesus Christ for salvation. It would be illegal for me to do that if this legislation was passed. The law wouldn't just attempt to muzzle those of us who preach. The law would have also made it illegal for you to tell your friends that Jesus Christ was the only way to salvation. It would have permeated all of society and made it illegal for Christians to do what Christians are called to do. There's even been suggestions in some quarters that taking your child to church regularly amounts to child abuse. And you should therefore face the same sort of penalties a pedophile faces. Seriously. You should have your child taken off you and be jailed because you're abusing your child by taking him or her to church on a regular basis. It's a serious suggestion in some parts of Western society. This is where much of the Western world is heading today. The change in attitudes in the last 10 years is enough to make your head spin. In the last five years, it's been frightening, the pace of change, the turnaround in people's attitudes. What will it be like in the next 10 years? How will you stand against that onslaught? How will you hold your ground in the face of society that has decided that you are now the evil one? That you are now the one who needs to be silenced, maybe imprisoned, 
Not only will you need to hold your ground, how will you swim against the tide? Because that's what we're called to do as Christians, swim against the tide. Our society is becoming increasingly hostile to Christians and there's a little sign that things will improve. It tells us in some of Paul's writings to pray for our leaders, pray for kings and those in authorities that we, in authority that we may be able to live in peace. We need to pray that, that we may be able to live in peace and continue to share the gospel openly. The society is heading rapidly in a direction that's going to prevent us doing that. You won't be able to stand if you're not anchored on the solid rock of Jesus Christ. You will not be able to stand. If you don't know the word of God, you won't be able to stand. If you don't know what God has done for you in Christ, you won't be able to stand. If you don't know where your identity and your security is to be found, you won't be able to stand. But Ephesians tells us about all these things and more. My hope, my prayer, my goal is that by the time we've worked rapidly through the book of Ephesians, that you'll understand your security in Christ. You'll understand that you don't need the affirmation of the world, of the twits on Twitter, of the 500 of your closest Facebook friends, that their affirmation doesn't matter because you are secure in Christ. And he has done things for us that are mind-blowingly amazing. I invite you to... Um, go and get a glass of juice, a piece of bread. We'll take communion now and gather in a circle before we take it. We'll take it together. Communion is an important part of Christian life. It's an important thing that we do together as a body of believers. Whatever became of the great temple of Artemis in Ephesus, it stands today in ruins, it's rubble. Still a tourist attraction, but now it's fallen. Artemis has been deposed from her magnificence. And the rubble of that temple is testimony to us of the impotence of religion. And it's also testimony to us of the invincible power of the word of God, which still stands. The gates of hell shall not prevail against the church and against the word of God. Jesus promised that. The fact that Artemis, the temple of Artemis has fallen and the church still stands is proof that Jesus was telling the truth. Whatever became of the church at Ephesus... That church no longer exists. It existed for a while, for a number of decades. Um, Don't know when it finished, but the Lord in the Revelation had some good things to say about Ephesus and the church there, but he also had a warning to them. Revelation 2, it says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary, but I have this against you. You have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. At the end of the day, friends, it's not just enough that we bear up stoically under persecution. It's not enough just to endure patiently. It's not even enough to discern falsehood. We must not abandon our first love. Who or what is your first love? I hope it's Jesus Christ. Check your heart before we take this together. Check your heart now. If you've fallen away from your first love and over the Christmas break it's easy to be distracted and sidetracked. Routine changes. And I've found for myself the change in routine has made some things about my Christian walk more difficult. Some of the things I did regularly I haven't done for the last few weeks. Check your heart. Is Jesus Christ still your first love? If you've fallen away, now is the time to return to him. Now is the time to repent. Will he take away your salvation? If the book of Ephesians is true, no, he won't. If he saved you, he will keep you. But, but he will take away your testimony to Christ. He will take away your Christian witness if you abandon your first love? Will you be a lamp? Will you be a light in the midst of a dark and darkening society? Or will you be one of those Christians that are mocked and despised for their hypocrisy? They claim to be Christians, but they're really no different to us. Friends, we have a challenge in years to come of being remaining a light, being and remaining a light, in darkness. Now we'll still be mocked and despised for uh, standing up for Christ. Make no mistake about that. That will happen. But let it not be because we're hypocrites. Let it be because we're shining the light of Christ in our society. Don't abandon your first love. He is the author and perfecter of your faith. He is the solid rock on which we stand. So now to take the bread, the juice, faith in humility, in repentance, in dependence, and most of all, in hope of his return. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, that you've called us to not just stand fast as lampstands but to swim against the tide of a 
society turning against you. Lord, I pray that each one of us will be strengthened this morning by your words, by this communion. Lord, would you do a work within us to strengthen us, to give us a resolve to follow hard after Christ, to face whatever the opposition may be boldly and uh, and openly as believers. Lord, if if our government decides to make it illegal for us to preach the name of Christ, Lord, I pray that each and every one of us will do so regardless. Lord, I pray that if uh, if it comes to that, that we, we have to go to prison uh, for our faith, Lord, that you'll sustain us, you'll strengthen us, and like you did with the early believers, Lord, the greater the persecution, the greater the growth of the church. Lord, would you do that? Would you do that in this nation? Would you do it in Western civilization, Lord? That as the persecution increases, that, uh, that the church increases exponentially more, Lord. Lord, we claim your promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church of God. And Lord, we go into this week and into this month, we go back to work and whatever, Lord, with boldness that you, God, are our sustainer, that you are our help in times of trouble, you are our strength, you are our rock, you are our compass, Lord. And Jesus, we give you glory that you have purchased us by your blood out of the world into a new kingdom. We are now citizens of heaven, Lord. I pray, Lord, that we'll be ambassadors, faithful ambassadors for you to make your name known. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.